Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Happy Wednesday, friends. It is June 8, 2022, or it is whatever date it is that you are listening to this podcast. I am Darren Mott, retired FBI supervisory special agent, host of this fine, fine Cyber Guy podcast. And I greatly appreciate each and every one of you for downloading and listening and supporting the podcast as best you can. Tell your friends, have them give a listen, see what they think. Uh, I do want to apologize. It's been a couple weeks since my last episode, and I want to kind of address the odd timing or the odd intermissions in between the podcast. It's not that I don't enjoy doing it because I honestly do, but I've changed a few priorities in my life. One of them being fitness at the, so this is, this is getting away from the cyber. We're going to not talk cyber here for a few minutes, but then we're going to talk five topics of cyber interest. So if you want to jump past this, you want a 30 second skip through a couple of this till we get to the cyber stuff, feel free to do so. But uh, in the, in the midst of COVID, uh, like many people, I had put on more weight than I necessarily wanted to. I was the heaviest I'd ever been and got pretty disgusted with everything. So in February of 21, my wife let me um, get a Peloton and I started Peloton biking and doing some other workout stuff. And so I'm happy to say that as of today, I'm about 35 pounds down from my heaviest weight. Um, so I've been doing a lot of fitness related stuff. I get home, work out, I get up early in the morning and work out. And so I've kind of changed the focus to do that more frequently. Um, as opposed, not that I don't enjoy doing the podcast and won't continue to do it going forward, but I do want to try to get back in the swing of things of being more regular with this. So I do apologize for the, the movements in between. Um, sometimes they're a week apart, sometimes they're two weeks apart. Um, I'm going to try to get more regular as best I can. Uh, one of the hard parts is, is, is finding people with to, t- to time up uh, to do interviews. People are busy, uh, and I want to respect their time. So hopefully I'll still have interviews. This, this particular episode today does not have an interview because I wanted to get some, some stuff out. Um, so it's just going to be me kind of talking news and interesting cyber bits. As always, I appreciate any feedback anybody wants to provide me, Darren at thecyberguy.com or follow me on uh, LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash IN slash Darren Mott, all one word. Feel free to look up me up there. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I pretty much accept most LinkedIn connections, so feel free to hit me up there if you have thoughts, comments, want to discuss um, fitness, discuss working out, good Peloton rides you might recommend or other Peloton stuff that they have with the core program and Pilates and all that kind of thing. So um, also I'm interested in if anybody has some good PC games worth playing. So I have an Xbox, I have a PlayStation, um, and I just bought a new uh, high-end gaming computer for the purpose of uh, doing some business stuff on it and maybe doing some gaming. So if anybody has some PC gaming recommendations, let me know that as well. Well, Let's get into the news, cyber news and interesting tidbits of this week. It's This is not going to be all of them, but it's going to be things that were of interest to me. So I want to start off the first one with an interesting article and something that I really pound on all the time, and that is passwords. So I'm going to talk two things with passwords today. Actually, before I talk this first, let me step back a second and talk about uh, a report I saw from Arcos Labs, A-R-K-O-S-E Labs. It's called the Quarter 2 State of Fraud and Account Security. Quarterly attack insights from across the Arcos Labs global network. I don't know what that is, but anytime someone puts out some kind of cyber 
security related report. I will download it and read it for interest purposes. And so this one is talking about some trends they saw during quarter two of 2022. And um, so a couple of things that they that, that come out of this particular um, report, and obviously the big one is an increase in cyber attacks. Not a surprise, should not be a surprise. But what I found interesting, and if you want to look it up, you can. Again, Arcos Labs, A-R-K-O-S-E, quarter 22 fraud report. But a couple key things that they saw um, is that 90% of human attacks in 2022 have targeted communication channels in gaming, dating, and tech, meaning that they're kind of looking for those areas to target people. Um, top targeted companies can see up to 35% of traffic coming from human fraudsters. And one of the interesting things here was the attack types. The number one attack type is what's called credential stuffing. And this is where bad guys take known breach information with usernames and passwords, and they use botnets uh, to basically flood login accounts to see if they can get a username and password to take at a login screen. Um, and so, and, but they're, and they're successful at this. They're able to get into networks, steal information, commit fraud, do all sorts of other things. And the other top attack types, top attack types, excuse me, they go along with this were phishing, fake accounts and scraping, which is where they kind of scrape information off of websites. But the two things here, credential stuffing and phishing kind of run along the same lines and they're looking for that human interaction. So bad guys are not brute force, I've said this before, are not brute force attacking networks to get in without anybody knowing. That still does occur where they find vulnerabilities and get in and do things. That's usually nation state actors doing that. But most of the bad guys doing the criminal stuff are using simple techniques, relying on our inability to do the smart and simple things, which brings me to password managers. Because passwords and people's inability to have good, strong passwords is what is causing a lot of this fraud and problem. Because People have passwords, they use them across all their accounts associated with the same email address, makes it very easy for bad guys to get legitimate login access to networks and steal information, steal your banking account information, all that kind of stuff. One of the ways around this, as I've said, is to have a password manager. So I saw an article today that I thought was interesting from PC World by Elena Yee. Uh, it's called Six Common Reasons People Don't Use a Password Manager and Why They're Wrong. Integrating a password manager into your life can be done without slowing down your routine. So a lot of people may think, well, if I'm going to have all these different passwords, I'm going to have a password manager. It's going to be tedious. It's going to take me forever to log in. It's not true. It's very easy. As I've said, I use one. But reading from this article, many people still have weak security practices, especially when it comes to passwords. They're reusing them, relying on easily cracked ones, or aren't aware that recommended guidelines have changed. And the reasons that they have for not using a password manager aren't crazy or stupid. Their feelings are entirely understandable, but they're still wrong. Passwords are similar to locks on the front door. Well, we know what passwords are. We're not going to talk about what passwords are. But the six reasons are, one, I have my own system and it works fine. So whatever your system is, trust me, it's probably not working fine or it's not going to work fine forever. So, um, you know, a lot of people still believe using numbers and symbols in place of letters or riffing off of a base password is sufficient protection. In other words, um, you know, let's say your password is password and you decide to change the A to a four and a, the O to a zero. The sad news, these strategies aren't strong enough anymore and haven't been for quite a while. It's easy to crack a password. What you want is length. Um, reason two, it takes too much time. That's not, it does not take a lot of time to use a third-party manager. It costs too much. Um, 
You don't have to spend a single cent for a good password manager from this article. Yes, paid password managers do often get recommended, and I do use one myself. I pay for one, but that's because it's the one I got long ago when it was free, and now they've got me sucked in, and so now they track me, but whatever. But that's because of an extra useful features, not their level of protection. A paid service will offer a wider range of two-factor authentication options like hardware authentication keys and, and so on like that. But a good free password manager will store all your login information securely and also easily generate long random passwords for every website and app. And just like paid password managers, it will also recognize sites you visit and offer to automatically fill your credentials as well as support basic two-factor authentication. So that's the important piece here is the these apps can have downloadable extensions onto browsers that you can then easily go in and it'll recognize the login address and it'll log in It'll, it'll automatically populate your password if it recognizes it. Plus, if you have a, and these password managers will give you long, lengthy, randomized passwords that are impossible to break under current technology. In other words, if you have a 20 character password um, and it doesn't really matter what you're using, if you're using a passphrase or what have you, then it's not going to get cracked because the bad guys aren't sitting there trying to guess your passwords. They're using tools to go through and try to figure out password and the longer it is the harder it is for those that technology to crack it reason number four they don't have a password having all my passwords in one place is dangerous not true um because a good password manager enables two-factor authentication with it and also it's encrypted on your device so if you are using a biometric authentication on your iphone in other words your face to get into your phone and then you have to use face recognition to get into your password manager the, that stuff that is that is safe. That's a it's got, it's got a password plus about biometrics. Now, if someone has your phone and they're able to use your face to crack into your password manager, you have bigger problems than your passwords. So just keep keep that in mind. Reason five: storing my passwords in the cloud seems risky. Again, fair concern, but most of these password managers, the companies that create them, um, try to go the extra mile to make sure that your passwords stay safe. Otherwise they would be out of business. So um, from the article, um, let me see what's points in this. Uh, you can go to the hybrid systems, uh, use an online, online password manager for medium and lower value accounts and your financial and other highly personal accounts. You have a more tightly controlled environment. In other words, um, if you don't care about your Facebook or your Twitter password, you have that that's stored in the cloud, but your banking stuff is still stored in the password manager that maybe you only access from your home computer, things like that. You can get around that whole thing about them being stored in the cloud. And number six, I get stuck with a password manager I hate. Well, you can always move to another one. There are, like I said, there are free ones. There, there are ones that you can buy, but, um, Obviously, the better services will allow you to export as an encrypted file your passwords if you change and move to another one, which minimizes the risk of sensitive data falling in the wrong hands. Um, and always choose an encrypted option because a plain text file of all your passwords is not any good. That's from the article. So again, password managers, you should use them. You should find one you like and don't be afraid to use it because once you start using it, you'll get used to it and it will be easy as pie. All right, next article has to do with ransomware. Ransomware, certainly big, always in the news. Been a little quiet lately on the password, on the ransomware front, simply because most of the, or a lot of the ransomware groups come from Russia. Uh, and so those Russian actors have been engaged with the Russian-Ukrainian war and, and trying to attack Ukrainian cyber targets in support of Russian needs. So ransomware has kind of been down, but they are, of course, still ongoing, um, just not quite as prevalent uh, but we will see, obviously, ransomware boot up or get 
more uh, active as time rolls on. But this article from Threat Post is very interesting because it says, so the article is titled, Pain Ransomware Paints a Bigger Bullseye on a Target's Back. And this is the age-old question. If you are a victim of ransomware, Nate Nelson is the reporter of this particular article. It's a quick read if you want to find it on Threat Post. But um, so... The point, or what he's talking about is, ransomware attackers often strike targets twice, regardless of whether the ransom was paid. Paying ransomware attackers doesn't pay off and often paints a bigger target on a victim's back. 80% of ransomware victims that paid their attackers were hit a second time, sometimes within a week. So that is an interesting note there, that, you know, victims that paid the ransom got hit again. The reason being... They don't take the time to figure out what the vulnerability is that allowed the ransomware to get in their system, and they don't have the ability, capability, or whatever, policies in place or what have you, to go ahead and fix those problems, and especially small and medium-sized companies. They just don't have the, big, the, the cybersecurity needs that they should have. So other information from this article, new ransomware numbers come from a Cyber Reasons April ransomware survey of 1,456 cybersecurity professionals. According to a gated report, victims that were successfully extorted were not only targeted a second time, but frequently data encrypted by criminals later became unusable during the decryption process because of corruption issues, which is obviously another problem. That, that brings up the question, do you pay the ransom or not? And it, and it depends... Um, and if you talk to law enforcement, I say, don't pay the ransom. A lot of people will say, and I've seen this argument on LinkedIn many times, don't pay the ransom because if you pay the ransom, that just funds their infrastructure and they will continue to do it. This is happening all over the globe. If you are a company and you get hit with ransomware and you need your data, you being the sole entity that doesn't pay the ransom is not going to stop the ransomware, guys. So you have to take a risk assessment of how important is the data? How important is it that you're encrypted? No one wants to get hit with ransomware, but these co these entities are looking for companies to get hit with, and they're not very smart. Quite honestly, I had a friend tell me about a company that got hit was a huge oil and gas type of company worth billions of dollars. Um, and keep in mind, the ransomware guys send out if they're especially if they're novices, send out you know, uh, malware that they hope someone clicks on that activates the malware ransomware on the system or gets them in. So this particular ransomware guy hit this company and his request for the decryption key was $500. So they paid him the $500 and he helped them fix the hole that was in there. And that's the thing with these ransomware companies is some of them act like businesses. They have help desks, support desks, all that kind of stuff. Now, you don't want to deal with them if you don't have to. Certainly, if you have the right backups, you have the capability to refresh your system to get back up and going fairly quickly without a lot of loss, don't pay the ransom. Absolutely don't pay it and ignore them. Fix the hole so you don't get hit again and move on with your life. But for modest, small, medium-sized companies, this is really not the case. So this particular um, article is interesting in the sense that, and it's I've seen it before, you get hit with a ransomware, you pay the ransom, you get your stuff decrypted, you get your your stuff back, and you get hit again because you don't fill the holes. So that's interesting. That's an interesting take for people that say, well, if you don't pay your ransom, then, you know, you're not funding ransomware, but, you know, if you do pay, you're in the, so it, it comes to all that kind of stuff. But if you get hit, you don't pay the ransom, and you don't fix your problem, you will get hit again because the bad guys are going to come right back in the same way they came back in again. So this, this relies on education of employees, um, the capability to look through emails for bad attachments. I mean, there's a whole host of, of preventative measures you can take. They all cost money. 
everything costs money in the cybersecurity world. Um, but it, or, you know, it requires the, the, you know, the, um, leadership of a company to take it seriously and pay for what it is that they need. All right. So that is ransomware and payments. So going off of this particular ransomware idea, um, there was an article posted in CSO online. And I'm mentioning this one because I'm quoted in this particular article that has to do with um, what are called OFAC um, OFAC sanctions against Russian ransomware groups. So this is a uh, Deb Radcliffe is the author of this particular article in CSO online. And the title is how the Russian Ukrainian war makes ransomware payments harder. The war in Ukraine has increased sanctions against paying ransom demands to cyber criminal groups and cryptocurrency intermediaries based in Russia. So, uh, and let me read a little bit of this. So last year, before the onset of the Russian-Ukrainian war, nearly 75% of cryptocurrency payouts for ransomware went to Russia, according to a study conducted by Chain Analysis. Let that sink in a moment. Then consider the legal ramifications of paying those ransoms now that Russia is a sanctioned country. So with the war in Ukraine, Russia has a bunch of different sanctions on them that make it illegal for companies to do business with entities within inside Russia. To Curtis Minder, CEO of digital risk protection firm GroupSense, these new sanctions mean he'll be forced to turn down more ransomware victims seeking response and negotiation services or else risk running afoul <clears throat> excuse me, of a growing list of sanctions issued by the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC. As opposed to the specific OFAC sanction list, Russian sanctions are wide and ambiguous, making them difficult to abide by without proper intelligence and context. And goes on. Um, I'm quoted in here about, you know, what do I think of, of the OFAC group? and so, so keep in mind, I, I looked at the OFAC list to see exactly what is on there from a Russian ransomware sanctioning type of body. And there's a couple of groups that are on there, but there's also Bitcoin addresses. So when ransomware groups hit, you have to pay the ransom to a specific Bitcoin address. Um, and it's a lengthy little algorithm thing that you pay for. And then it, within the within the cryptocurrency community, within the, the blockchain that you have to pay to, be it Bitcoin, be it Moderna, be it um, Ethereum or whatever, there's an address that allows the ledger to show that particular payment and put it in the blockchain. Remember, there's no third party intermediary here in the blockchain. It's all kind of done through a community type of thing. Um, so the OFAC list has a bunch of these Bitcoin addresses that you cannot legally send money to. So if you get hit and you the ransomware says, here's, here's the Bitcoin address to pay the ransom to get your files decrypted, you would then, if you wanted to pay it, you would send money to that Bitcoin address and it would go to the bad guy and he would theoretically decrypt your files. What OFAC is saying is that with these Bitcoin addresses on our sanction list, if you as a U.S. company or U.S. citizen pay the ransom to that Bitcoin address, you are violating U.S. law and violating the sanction that we have put in place. Fine, I get that. And certainly if you are a victim and you see the Bitcoin address on the OFAC list, you can't, uh, don't pay the ransom. Here's the problem with all of this is that the bad guys can see the list. So they know, hey, that's my Bitcoin address or my crypto address, whatever. They will then just create a new one, which is not on the OFAC list. It takes a while for entities to be placed on OFAC's sanction list. It's not like if they create a new one that OFAC's just going to throw the new one up. It takes a while for it to go through the legal wrangling within the U.S. government to be put on that sanction list. And here's the other thing. You know, Bitcoin transactions are not the easiest things to track. You certainly can do it. It's not impossible 
But OFAC doesn't have really an investigative arm to go look for those people who may be paying money to the ransomware address, the Bitcoin address that's sanctioned. So again, I'm not saying that if, I'm not saying you should violate the sanction list and if, if a Bitcoin address is on the sanction list, you should pay. I'm not saying that at all. But you have to then make a risk assessment. Are you willing to risk running afoul of the U.S. government um, looking at you for making that address? My argument here is why are we victimizing the victims again? I understand what the idea of this is and I get it. Um, but it's really putting an interesting bit of politics on something that impacts individuals and companies that had nothing to do with any of it whatsoever. So it's unfortunate that that's where we're at, but um, I, I make that point just to say that it's an interesting article to go look for. Again, how the Russian-Ukrainian war makes ransomware payments harder. Deb Radcliffe, uh, the author, you can find that. Uh, I have it on a LinkedIn list, but you could obviously go look at it and read it. It's a quick read. It's a good read. It's an interesting read about how politics, the government, and Russia all kind of interact and do these crazy things together. All right, last one. I want to talk about insider threat stuff because that's important to any company is you don't want someone within your company stealing your intellectual property and making you go bankrupt and stealing your stuff. So this is an article from Jordan Robinson, Robertson and Michael Riley from Bloomberg. Um, they are really good reporters. They have done several articles on China's efforts to steal U.S. intellectual property. This was from this week. Engineer who fled, who fled charges of stealing chip technology in the U.S. now thrives in China. So from the article, few companies are better positioned to benefit from the crippling shortage of computer chips than ASML Holding NV, a Dutch manufacturer whose equipment plays an integral role in making the world's most advanced semiconductors. But four lines tucked halfway into their otherwise upbeat 281-page annual report from February hinted at a potentially incendiary problem. ASML accused a Beijing-based firm regarded by Chinese officials as one of the country's most promising tech ventures of potentially stealing its trade secrets. Behind the brief disclosure is an extraordinary multi-year tale of intellectual property theft and the broader threat facing the $556 billion semiconductor industry. This article is fairly lengthy, so I'm not going to read much more from it. Just to make the point of this, China has been doing this since the early 2000s, if, and they've been stealing stuff since way before that using traditional intelligence collection techniques. What the cyber realm has done is create a very easy, simple methodology for Chinese nation state actors to find individuals that they can send over here to companies to, to do exactly what they've done for years and years and years. And that is steal information. If they can't get in cyber wise, they will get in human wise. So my guess is they tried to hack into, Chinese hackers tried to hack into ASML and maybe didn't have much success getting what it was that they were looking for. So they sent individuals over here to get jobs within this company who then stole the information, took it back to China and are using it to undercut this particular company's technology. This is not new, but what it shows is the blending of cybersecurity and intelligence collection where companies need to now blend their cybersecurity efforts, their, their IT security efforts as well, with a counterintelligence type of approach to protecting themselves from these threats. Now, within the defense industrial base, they have insider threat programs are required to do. I'll be honest, most companies probably just look at that, do whatever the minimum is to create their insider threat program. They talk about it once a year and they move on with their lives. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how business works. How's, what's the cheapest way we can get around with it? But I argue 
and um, I mentioned this on a LinkedIn post that really didn't get a whole lot of traction, unfortunately, but I made an effort. Uh, what I argue is that you need to create a counterintelligence plan. In other words, do what the government does to stop nation state actors from stealing government secrets from, you know, U.S. governmental departments. Create the capability to hide your data, falsify your data, make it harder for the bad guys to get your information. The FBI actually has a program called the Illicit Data Loss Exploitation Program, which they can help companies do things on their networks that will trigger things that tell them someone's doing bad stuff or someone's looking for information they're not supposed to and and prevent the loss of intellectual property. That's what it all comes down to is what is the thing, what is your crown jewel in your network, in your company that is important for you to protect? Once you figure that out, how are you protecting it? So, you know, take the efforts to figure out, you know, how to secure it come up with counterintelligence strategies to do that. And I recognize that's not easy to do, which is why I offer that service to people who want to hear it. So if you, and, and if anybody listens to this podcast, works for a company that wants a counterintelligence program, I'll do it for you for free if you rec- if you recommend this episode of the of the podcast. Give me a, give me an email and we can talk about how to, how to kind of start down that road if it's something you're interested in doing. Um, and so that is, you know, China is going to continue to steal our information. Russia is going to continue to use ransomware and criminal actors to steal money and screw up companies. Bad stuff is happening on the internet. You need to take means and ways to protect yourself and your family from that. And we didn't even really talk this week about crimes against children, all that stuff. And we will hopefully talk about that uh, on another episode in a little more depth with some folks that have worked. I know there's other episodes that, of the Cyber Guy where you can kind of hear about uh, crimes against children, but that might be uh, a topic for the next time. I don't have a guest and just want to go ahead and pontificate for 25, 30 minutes. Uh, if you're interested, I was on a podcast here locally in Huntsville a week and a half, two weeks ago called the Our Town Podcast. Um, you can find it on YouTube. It's a video and a podcast. Um, and if you look at the video one, you will see why I like to say I have a face made for radio. So I was not comfortable having it videotaped, but it, I mean, I mean, not videotaped, but you know, digitally put on YouTube, but it's an entertaining little podcast, a little different. You'll see a little different side of me that you don't necessarily hear, uh, here on the podcast. So I availed that of you if you want to take a listen to that. Also, in addition to the cyber guy podcast, we have the get cyber smart podcast, which we're actually going to do the next episode right after I get off of this one and post both of those up today. So feel free to take a look for that. If you have friends, neighbors, family members that aren't overly versed in cybersecurity needs and you want to train them up on all things cyber, the Cyber Smart Podcast is that for you. Because if you get a little cyber smart, you get a whole lot cyber safer. Those are quick little podcasts to listen to. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, knowledge is protection. Understand the threats that are targeting you. Assess your risk. Proceed wisely online and stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you soon.